If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. The thought of reality-bending events might seem like fun. Like, who doesn't want to read about an entire town suddenly overrun with porta-potties? But when we get into the nitty-gritty of that idea, of laws of nature being broken, of aliens or extra-dimensional beings existing amongst us, of your toaster being able to sign your rent checks, those sorts of things, when we really get into that, we have to take the masses into account. As a whole, humanity doesn't really cope well with change. We tend to have a bit of a herd mentality. We dogpile with each other. We fight with each other. We tend to think of ourselves as the apex. And things, events, energies, whatever you want to call them, that stand in defiance of those beliefs could cause widespread panic. Entire societies could be turned upside down if a tentacle, hey, hey, ah, psionic being just suddenly appeared in the sky. And think of what could happen to religion if we found out that Jesus of Nazareth was actually an interdimensional being that got bored for 33 years and it was all just a prank, bro. Well, enter the Federal Bureau of Control, the FBC, keeping us safe from ourselves and the paranatural world around us since around the mid-1900s. There weren't a lot of official records kept at that time that gives us a solid foundation to the FBC, but its younger years were really spent getting a hold on its own existence, that there were unexplainable things out there in the world that needed to be studied and contained for the greater good, some of them confusing, some of them outright dangerous. Back in those early years, it was just another agency in the federal government, though a highly secretive one. The small, unofficially named agency investigated Altered World Events, or AWEs, and Altered Items. An Altered World Event can be as gentle as a breeze, or as destructive as a Black Friday sale at a mall in the early 2000s. Simply put, an AWE is when a paranatural energy or force acts upon our reality. And we can throw around lingo all day, but we can best make sense of what an AWE is just by talking about one. So, for example, in 1958, an AWE occurred called the Meteor Hill AWE. A group of boys in a local youth science league were doing an archaeological dig when suddenly they unearthed something. A matter of some sort that, after the fact, would be equated to magma and vapor. Initially, the boys said that the magma-like substance was pleasant, and the vapors from it that surrounded them weren't frightening, but that very quickly changed. The boys were modified, for lack of a better word. They experienced deformities, loss of skin and hair pigment. They became confused and aggressive. The event was covered up, the boys sent to private recovery clinics run by the shadowy agency, their fates widely left unknown and the magma-like substance was collected and studied, but not to much avail. It was nigh impossible to understand what it really was. And in those early days, the unnamed agency didn't really have the terminology to define occurrences or understand how the magma slash vapor was made. But all that aside, there you have it, an altered world event, an AWE. Many AWEs end in the same way that this one did, with a frustrating lack of closure and answers. Sometimes the best case scenario is just covering up the incident and containing what caused it. Now, altered items are paranatural items that are generally created during an altered world event. But linking an altered item to an altered world event is generally pretty impossible to do, unless it was done intentionally or it was witnessed. An example of an altered item is the game hammer. In the mid to late 1950s, it was discovered that a carnival game mallet was infecting people with something akin to aggressive leprosy. 
Folks would use the hammer during a carnival game, and then within a few days, they would just start to, well, rot. It wasn't really the disease from the hammer itself that killed people, it was the infections that came from the rot. And a lot of people died before the Bureau managed to get wind of it and take possession of the hammer. In the coming years, it would be better understood that altered items and altered world events were the result of something called resonance, a mysterious paranatural force made up of frequencies that don't exist within our reality. But when resonance comes in contact with people or objects, it changes them. And the thing is, resonance is extremely difficult to even define, let alone understand. It's convoluted and vague. In the case of the Game Hammer and many items like it, it's impossible to know exactly how it was created, what resonance or paranatural force acted on that mundane item, but that it was an altered item made it extremely dangerous, far too dangerous to just be left out there in the world. But now that we have a couple basics down, a couple very important basics, we can start talking about the history of the FBC itself. The first known director of the Bureau was a man named Theodore Ash Sr. This was back before it was officially called the Federal Bureau of Control. Director Theodore Ash Sr. was an odd esoteric man, at least according to his son Theodore Ash Jr. But though he was the first known slash documented director, he certainly wasn't the first director. He was the 11th, actually. Who were the 10 that came before him? Who knows? Theo Sr.'s legacy was actually his son, who he appointed as his head of research. And Dr. Theodore Ash Jr. had a tense relationship with Theo Sr. Jr. had a massive inferiority complex, and he felt like he existed just to live in his father's shadow. He could never live up to daddy's expectations. He would always be a disappointment, and he was a bit whiny about it too. Director Theo Sr. died in 1964 very suddenly. His replacement was a man named Broderick Northmore, and that is a name to remember, because Northmore would become a fascinating being. About a week after Northmore's appointment as the new director, an altered world event cropped up that needed investigating. It was in the subway system of New York City, and what the agency found down there would forever change its trajectory. They found the oldest house. Turns out, calling the oldest house an altered world event was wrong. It was a place of power, and calling it a house was a bit misleading. The oldest house was actually a massive skyscraper-esque building that went as deep into the ground as it did into the sky. But what's so very, very odd about the oldest house was, well, nobody knew that it was there. Anyone walking by the oldest house wouldn't really see it. Their minds wouldn't register that it existed. If they recalled anything, it was just that the oldest house was like any other New York building. It wasn't until somebody was seeking the oldest house that they would actually see it, and then, of course, it stood out as a very unique place. And within the oldest house, the corridors were nomadic, or, or shifting. Early arrivals back in 1964 recognized that its moving halls and floors were dangerous and unpredictable. It was impossible to be careful or establish safety protocol because it was so unpredictable. Eventually, the oldest house was redefined as a place of power, and I'm sure you can conjure up what that means. It's a place that defied logic and explanation, a seemingly infinite place within a quantifiable space from the outside. There would be other places of power established over time, each playing by their own rules, but arguably, few would have the impact and the importance of the oldest house. Under Director Broderick Northmore's command and supervision, teams were sent in to explore and study the oldest house. Theodore Ash Jr. was a key player in those explorations and studies. 
After about five days, they delved into what became known as the foundation of the oldest house. And it gets confusing, but the foundation and what was found down there became world-alteringly important. It is the foundation, so to speak, of much of what is to come. Unlike the oldest house that sat upon it, the foundation's caves and rocky corridors did not shift or fluctuate. It was a static location, but wildly dangerous to traverse. No small number of people died delving into the depths of the oldest house and down into the foundation. Within the foundation, the explorers found a strange ebony pillar that they took to calling the nail, and it was immediately apparent that there was something really funky about the nail. After some time, a pedestal appeared that was not there before, and on it, Director Northmore found a black pistol. And Theo Jr. said that the director finding that gun was like something out of a storybook, like a hero finding his weapon of destiny, Arthur taking up Excalibur, except, you know, a gun. But Theo Jr. said that it was more like bait than a gift from the unknown the perfect sort of bait for a man like Northmore, whose ego commanded him to immediately seize the strange service weapon. Some hours after Northmore took up the gun, he began to receive messages or transmissions from an entity that he called the board. According to Northmore, all who carried the title of director before him were meaningless. He was the first true director, the one chosen by the board to lead this agency. All others were just shams and frauds. Thea Jr. spearheaded studies of the nail and the surrounding caverns. We'll go through most of what happened from the point of view of Theo Jr., as he had the best record-keeping practices of anyone that walked the foundation. After the first month, the very irritable head of research, Dr. Theodore Ash Jr., started to come around to the investigations that he was a part of. At first, he was really moody and negative about being down there, but once his discoveries began, he began to find his passion ignited. Theodore Ash Jr. found what he called ley lines, almost mystical sources of energies that flowed under and through the oldest house. And he tracked these ley lines to a central point, the heart of the oldest house, the nail. Studying the ley lines and the nail, he was able to build an array, as he called it, technology that could impose order on the ley lines. Those arrays would become very important within the oldest house, but we'll talk more about those in a bit. After 41 days, Theo Jr.'s staff was demoralized and many were bordering on meltdowns. They all felt like the nail was watching them, or perhaps something within the caverns of the foundation were watching them. And that paranoia probably wasn't made much better by some new friends that Theo Jr. made. He described them as sculptures of humans, akin to homunculi, maybe. They weren't hostile, they seemed polite and curious, in fact. He called them the id, and he gave each of them names. Theo Jr. developed a kind of fondness for the id, though most everyone else found them to be weird and off-putting. Day 51, Director Northmore issued an all-hands order, find more items like the service weapon. He was sure that there were more items like it in the oldest house, but Theo Jr., ever skeptical and cranky, wasn't sure why he thought that. You see, Northmore was changing, or maybe developing would be a better word. He was setting a new standard for future directors, but they didn't quite understand what that entailed. It was hard to make sense of what Northmore was talking about. He kept going on about a pyramid and joining a greater cause. Northmore was getting a grand education on how small humanity was in the greater cosmic scheme, and he also found himself standing out amongst his peers. That's because Northmore was what we would eventually call a para-utilitarian meaning an individual who had paranatural affinities or powers. 
Northmore's powers began awakening as soon as he picked up that gun, the service weapon. Now, if anyone else had done that, it would have ended badly for them. Because that gun is, oh, it's so special. That gun was an object of power. Altered items like that leprosy hammer and objects of power can be semi-quantified for easier understanding. For a normal person, think of an altered item like a stormy day, pleasant or unpleasant depending on your outlook and your luck. Maybe inconvenient, could cause harm depending on what you're doing, death is possible for the careless. Now, think of an object of power like a Category 5 hurricane catastrophic to the normal person that just waltzes right out into it. But for a para-utilitarian, it's like going into the hurricane prepared, whether they realize it or not. Still very dangerous, but their chances for survival were much higher if they didn't muck around. In fact, a bureau employee did once pick up an object of power and she didn't make it. And everyone who witnessed it had to go through intense memory suppression and then career termination after the fact. But back to Northmore. He described that pyramid that he mentioned to Theo Jr. as inverted, black, and mathematically perfect, which was interesting to Theo Jr. because the id had drawn pictures of that exact same thing on the cave walls, so everything was somehow connected. Theo Jr. tried to make sense of it, drawing parallels between old occult symbols and writers who used triangles in their works, but nothing really fit. Well, fast forward about a month to day 86, by this point, Dr. Theodore Ash Jr. had developed ways to stabilize what he called control points. These arrays, the one that we mentioned earlier, they utilized the ley line energy within this place of power. It allowed the director to stabilize the fluctuating halls of the oldest house, enough that they could make sense of it, map it, and eventually they could even come and go from it. Essentially, these arrays, it turned the oldest house into a functional office building for the Bureau perfectly hidden from the sight of the common man in the heart of New York City. But on this particular day, day 86, something terrible happened. A few of the id, Theo Jr.'s strange new homunculi friends, they attacked the staff. And this was the breaking point for Northmore, who ordered all staff out of the foundation. It was too dangerous for them to remain there. Enough people had died during their exploration. They had all the knowledge they needed to return to the oldest house, so it was time to go. But Theo Jr., he didn't want to leave. He had grown fond of the foundation, as he put it. There was something in the stone that he felt needed him. So he refused the order, and he remained in the foundation alone. On day 118, Theo Jr. could detect the veins of the house without any tools. He could hear them. He was walking around barefoot, riding on the walls, hiding from the id, just being a bit feral and weird. But as he began to ponder more and more the nature of this place of power, he began to understand his father a bit more, the late director, Theodore Ash Sr. He understood why his father was so drawn to the occult, to the strange, to the unexplained, why it was such a source of awe for him. And there was a sadness to this realization, at least as much sadness as Theo Jr. was capable of. Guy was still a bit of an asshole even in his most reflective moments. He decided to return to the oldest house, to leave the foundation, he felt that he had purpose now, a devotion. He would help guide the Bureau forward, continuing his studies and helping define the unknowns of the world. We are now entering 1965. The Federal Bureau of Control is established, setting up office within the oldest house. 
Dr. Theodore Ash Jr. has returned from the foundation to serve as the head of research for the Bureau. Project Northmore is the acting director. He is the first director that is a known para-utilitarian, meaning he can interact with objects of power. He has interacted with strange beings called the Board. He is a special boy, and by now the foundation has been sealed off and records of it locked away. In August of 1965, something very spicy happened. A new object of power appeared. Though at first, they didn't know that it was an object of power. It was just a red phone, the hotline, as it would become known as. It just appeared one day in Director Northmore's office, and then it rang. Northmore picked it up on impulse, like he had done with the service weapon, and on the other end was the board. Northmore first had contact with them after picking up the gun. They were a persistent presence for him and him alone, but the hotline made it a bit more tangible for other people, like Dr. Theodore Ash Jr. After the hotline was set up, the board became a bit needy, demanding. They acted as though the Bureau existed to carry out their will, and Northmore, he kinda went along with it. The board had given him power, they had chosen him, they had elevated him, so he had a strange allegiance to them that seemed parasitic to Theo Jr. But the board was also their link to something beyond this reality, so the head of research went along with it. The board was their link to the astral plane. Do you remember the nail, the thing that Theo Jr. was studying down in the foundation? Well, it turns out the nail was so interesting because it was a tether between our reality and the board in the astral plane. Calling it the nail was fitting because it kind of held the astral plane and the oldest house together. It's hard to define the astral plane because it can change depending on the circumstances in which it's being perceived, but it's also not subjective. It's a quite literal place. It's a mindscape and it's the home of the board. The board itself would come to be called a paranatural entity, though if it was one being or a group of entities is unknown. The astral plane was a source of paranatural energies, and the inverted triangle was where the board seemed to live. Studying the weirdness of the astral plane and the board, it was discovered that objects of power were linked to the board, that para-utilitarians could bind themselves to objects of power, gain abilities from them because the board allowed them to do so. So, when Northmore picked up the service weapon, it was bound to him. He gained abilities from it. If anyone else had picked up that gun, they probably would have died a horrible death. Same with the hotline. Only the para-utilitarians that the board selected could pick it up. And in this case, it was whoever was the director of the bureau. The board would issue orders via the hotline, and they expected the director to comply. In the coming decades, a very serious issue arose concerning the intentional creation of altered items and the criminality behind it, because it was discovered that altered items could be created with concentrated mental effort and awareness. Altered items could be created on accident, but the real concern was knowledgeable people doing it on purpose. The Ash Act was created, which would prosecute anyone who knowingly tried to harness the paranatural for their own personal gain, and it was enforced harshly. An organization called The Blessed became a known paracriminal group that the FBC actively hunted. The Blessed had no problem causing mass fatalities to create altered items, yet they were so secretive and educated that the FBC could not stop them. They were always one step behind, a response team after the fact. And actually, as altered world events began to happen more and more, as the world became more interconnected, the FBC in general just sort of became that, a response team. They had no way to know when an AWE was going to happen. 
They just had to listen and respond as quickly as possible, cover things up with the compliance of government bodies, and remove altered items from the world. In the 70s, something happened in a small town called Bright Falls in Washington state. A number of things, actually. An enigmatic rider going missing, heavy metal brothers summoning the power of Nordic gods, the birth of a new hero, or perhaps villain. But we're not quite ready for that one. We need to continue on past that for now so that we can best understand that particular AWE. And when we do loop back, you get your red yarn ready. A huge number of AWEs would take place over the coming decades. Several altered items and objects of power discovered, so many that, well, it could be its own series of just discussing the logistics of every single one. The Bureau expanded to accommodate all these discoveries and events. A massive investigations department was made, communications was set up, tons of staff brought on to serve their growing needs. And all of it was done with the utmost secrecy. Broderick Northmore served as the director for a very long time, probably until about the mid-90s. But something very wrong began to happen within Northmore. As more objects of power were discovered and brought in, as the board exerted perhaps too much influence over him, Northmore became unstable physically. His paranatural powers were too great, and he knew it. Things had gone a little bit too far with Broderick. The board had made mistakes in giving him all of these abilities. One of Northmore's underlings, a man named Zachariah Trench, proposed a solution, Northmore's retirement. Trench had been with the FBC for a very long time. He was extremely intelligent. He had been seasoned as a field agent for decades. Trench once had a family, a wife and a daughter. After he accidentally took work home with him, in the form of a paranatural germ, so to speak, his daughter fell ill. It ultimately ended in her death. His wife never forgave him and left his ass. After that, Trench devoted his entire being to the Bureau. He couldn't stop moving. He had to always be thinking. To do otherwise was just torture for him. Trench proposed that Northmore put all his power to good use in his retirement by acting as a literal light source for the Bureau. Somehow, he got Northmore to agree. Seems there weren't a lot of nonviolent solutions for the director. So the Northmore sarcophagus chamber was created to contain the director. Northmore stepped down, he entered the sarcophagus, and kept the lights on for the FBC by becoming a power source for it. Now, with no director to replace Northmore, a small crisis began to loom. Something the FBC had not done was seek out other para-utilitarians, people like Northmore, who could interact with objects of power, who could communicate with the board. While going through Northmore's things, Trench picked up the service weapon. He said he almost did it on a dare, and he found that, well, he didn't explode into a pile of goo. The board approved of Zachariah Trench as the next director of the FBC. They called him via the hotline to congratulate him on his promotion, and just like that, Trench went to work. Unlike Broderick Northmore, Zachariah Trench had very little thirst for power. He didn't want to collect objects of power and siphon abilities off of them. In fact, Trench wanted to see all of them contained alongside any altered items they could find. Dr. Theodore Ash Jr. either passed away or retired at about the same time. And in his place, Trench asked his best friend, the genius mind himself, Dr. Casper Darling, to take his place as the head of research. And Dr. Darling was born for that job. Trench went on to establish his own management team to help him run things. Casper Darling ran research, Lynn Salvador ran security, Alberto Tomasi ran communications, 
Helen Marshall ran operations, their internal military and field responses, and William Kirkland ran investigations. Under Trench's order, the Panopticon was created, a special prison to house altered items and objects of power in the containment sector of the oldest house. His team also created operating procedures and response procedures for both inside and outside the oldest house. It covered everything from day-to-day -day operations, to information storage, to training, up to altered world event response initiatives. Trench also knew that he would not be director forever. There had to be a replacement ready, so he created the Prime Candidate Program. They would watch for people who exhibited para-utilitarian traits. They would be tracked down and brought in for study, interview, education, everything. The issue with this program seemed to be the human aspect of it, though. Candidates weren't treated like people, they were treated like test subjects, and this practice would eventually come back to bite them on the ass. Their first five prime candidates were all failures. It's entirely unknown who those five people were or what happened to them. Chances are it ended quite badly, which for the Bureau was just a disappointment. That is, until 2002. In a little town called Ordinary, a massive altered world event took place. When the FBC arrived, they discovered that all the adults in the town were just gone, vanished. No traces left behind. There were just a couple kids. The FBC showed up immediately following the AWE in September of 2002. And there they found Jesse Faden and her little brother Dylan Faden. Jesse was about 11 years old and Dylan was maybe 9 or 10. They led the FBC, specifically they led Trench and Darling themselves, to the town dump where the kids had been playing with a slide projector. Little Jessie Faden told them about what happened here as best as her child brain could remember, and what a story it turned out to be. You see, a few weeks prior to the AWE, Jessie and Dylan were playing at the dump as all normal kids do, and during their adventure, they found the titular slide projector, as well as a questionable number of slides. After the fact, Jesse said there were nine slides, Dylan said there were eight slides, and the FBC only found seven slides. But regardless, when the kids put the slides into the projector, they opened doorways to other dimensions. And being normal kids, they went head first into these weird doorways and started looking around. Time and actions get a little weird and convoluted, but over the next perhaps hours or days, Jesse and Dylan got their friend Neil involved, and they all kept exploring the different worlds that the slide projector opened up. They found a world of flowers that smelled nice and made them trip out. They found a dark warehouse-like place. A strange creature called the Not Mother lived there along with all her babies, according to Jesse. They found a slide that took them to a shelter of some sort, a house that they used as a playhouse all their own. But then, a twist in the drama of these children's playtime. A bully doth appear, many bullies in fact. The evil Tom Barlow and his dastardly gang of misfits. They beat up the nerd Neil and took from him the secrets of the slide projector. Poor Neil spilled the beans and soon another faction of children would be searching out this slide projector. When Tom and his gang found the projector at the dump, they secretly relocated it to their hideout at Sled Hill Cave. It seemed that this group of ruffians quite liked the dark warehouse slide where the Knot Mother and her babies lived. Tom and his gang spent a lot of time in there and the Knot Mother started feeding them her milk. It changed them into these weird monsters that Jesse called dung monkeys. Though the change wasn't so physically apparent that they still couldn't go to school, but their aggressions came to a head when Tom and his friends pushed a piano onto their math teacher and broke her legs and then bashed her head in. The police dragged Tom and his friends away while Tom himself was screaming that the Knot Mother was going to make them all disappear. 
and after that, a strict curfew for all the children was put into place. Jesse and Dylan's parents were extremely upset that they were playing at the dump and interrogated them at length over it. Jesse was so angry that one night she wished all the adults in ordinary were gone, just like Tom. And the next morning, they were. All the adults of the town had just vanished. An altered world event was underway. Jesse and Dylan followed the dung monkeys around and found where they were keeping the slide projector. They had kept it going this whole time. And worse, after the adults were gone, they found that a bunch of kids from school had joined the gang and they were turning too. Jesse rushed to the slide projector, but the dung monkeys tried to intercept them. There was a brief chase, but just when it seemed that Jesse and Dylan were going to be caught, it was their friend Neil who saved the day. He showed up just before all the dung monkeys caught them and he fought back. Neil was turning into a dog though, because you know, of, of course, Neil liked dogs, so that's how this was affecting him. Later, Dylan described him as a melting dog. Dog Neil saved Jesse and Dylan, stopping the dung monkeys from getting them so they could get to safety and turn off the side projector. But Jesse physically couldn't get it to shut off, it was stuck. In a panic, Jesse took out the slide and exchanged it. They opened a doorway to a world of paramount importance. It took them to a desert world where five pillars stood in the distance. Do you remember the meaning of the word resonance? It's the vague paranatural frequency from other dimensions that acts upon people or items or places to make them altered items or altered world events. The resonance from the not mother's world was what was affecting the kids, turning them into dung monkeys, but it didn't affect Jesse or Dylan. Well, this world was dense with intense resonance fields, so much so that there was no sound in this place. They immediately met a strange being that Jesse described as being like a star, so she called it Polaris. And Polaris was sentient resonance. She had no body or voice, but they could hear her communicate psychically, in a sense, in their heads. And they could speak back to Polaris the same way. Polaris told Jesse and Dylan that they were special, they were para-utilitarians, and that she was going to help them. Polaris told Jesse how to shut off the slide projector, how to stop the resonance flowing out into their world, thus ending the altered world event. As soon as it was shut off, all the children impacted by the resonance vanished. Even poor dog Neil. Polaris stayed with Jesse and Dylan. Because they were both para-utilitarians, the resonance of Polaris didn't harm them or change them, at least not at first. To both of them, Polaris was like a friend that they could trust. Jesse decided to burn all the projector slides so that this could never happen again. The only one that would be found later would be labeled Hand. It was the desert homeworld of Polaris. Shortly after, the Federal Bureau of Control arrived on the scene, but they could find no trace of the adults or the kids where they had gone to. It was like they were there one moment and then just erased from existence. Everyone was labeled as missing. The whole situation was effectively covered up. When FBC agents tried to collect Jesse and Dylan to take custody of them, Jesse became frightened and ran away, leaving her little brother behind with the FBC. Dylan entered the prime candidate program back at the oldest house, and from the get-go, he was Casper Darling's prized pet specimen. He was treated like it too. While he was getting settled into his new life, the FBC traveled the entire dump at the town of Ordinary into the containment sector at the oldest house, every single piece of it, in case they needed to recreate it, or in case they missed something in the rubble. The slide projector was kept there as well, under tight lock and key, where it could be studied by Dr. Darling's office. 
Jesse Faden was eventually found by the FBC, but they let the girl go and just watched her from a distance, probably as an extension of the prime candidate program. She was sure to stay mobile, to be careful, because she always felt like she was being watched. And she knew what happened at Ordinary and the presence of Polaris made her abnormal. The Bureau would plant people into her life, doctors and therapists, that were trying to get information out of her and to manipulate her, but for the most part, she just lived her own nomadic life, always under the heavy weight of guilt for abandoning her brother to the FBC. Speaking of, Dylan was dealt a terrible hand. He was never nurtured, he didn't have friends, he didn't develop social skills, and he was never shown empathy. He was constantly under supervision, and when his sister never showed up to be with him or to save him, he started to become angry. He began to see everyone around him and Polaris herself as an enemy. He was a promising prime candidate, P6 he was called. But as his dissatisfactions grew, so too did his personal restrictions. If he didn't comply with orders, something was taken away. No one listened to his outbursts, and Casper Darling in particular refused to acknowledge that this extremely poor addressed young man was really becoming dangerous. Darling made excuses for him, boys will be boys and all that nonsense. Even when people started getting hurt, he just made more excuses. Even after Dylan killed an agent during one of his rages, they didn't stop. The agent's autopsy reported full body blunt force trauma, lacerations, fractures, and breaks. It's like they were hit by a car. Dr. Darling became a bit more distant with Dylan, but they still treated him like a prime candidate. It took many more agent deaths before Dylan was considered a lost cause by the people who had essentially created him. A special holding cell was built for Dylan within the Panopticon, and he was locked away. Everyone was his enemy now. He rejected Polaris, he hated all around him, and he no longer cared about his sister. There would come a time in 2019 when Jesse Faden felt a calling to be at a certain place at a specific time. You see, something terrible had happened at the oldest house. Director Trench is compromised. Dr. Darling goes missing. A strange alien invasion begins and countless innocent people inside the oldest house are either killed or taken over by it. It would be a doomsday scenario if this invading force made it out of the oldest house. But first, we gotta slow down. We gotta go back in time. Really, we need to go back to the 1970s. For those who may be in the know, wink, wink, tip of the hat, maybe you know how weird and wild things are about to get. Because next, we need to talk about Alan Wake. 